This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. All right, we're ready to start our um, second session with Danny Pavanelli's um, talk on all the stories animals don't tell. And um, Nani is from the University of Louisiana and um, the co-organizer of this uh, symposium. Okay. Welcome, Danny. Okay, well, the first story about animals I remember was about a cute little monkey named Curious George. Actually, he was probably a chimpanzee because he didn't have a tail. Now, I didn't know that at the time because I was only four. (laughs) Anyhow, Curious George used to get into a lot of trouble, but he always managed to use his monkey smarts to save the day. So naturally, he was one proud little monkey. Now, many years later, when I was 15, I read another story about chimpanzees in mirrors, and it went like this. Once upon a time, there was a chimpanzee named Megan, And like Curious George, she was smart, too. Megan even knew how to use a hook to get your attention. That's a joke for the musicologists. But there was one thing Megan didn't know. She had no idea what she looked like. She'd never seen herself in a mirror. Her eyes, mouth, ears, her whole face were completely unknown to her. But then one day, a man with a mustache brought her a mysterious piece of glass. At first, Megan thought it was another chimp and tried to kiss it. The other chimp kissed her right back. Now, that's not too surprising. Chimps like kissing. So Megan thought, well, she's friendly enough. Maybe she'll play with me. But whoa, the other chimp had the same idea at exactly the same time. So Megan tried again. But the other chimp imitated her again. Annoyed, Megan stuck out her tongue. Ah! But no matter what she did, the other chimp did it right back. So Megan got angry. She shook the mirror. She threatened the other chimp. But it was like the other chimp was stuck to her. This was one tricky situation. Then suddenly, no, was it possible? The other chimp was actually her self? Megan slowly waved her hands back and forth. She even made more exaggerated faces. It was true. She was controlling the movements of the image. That's no other chimp, she realized. That's me. That's my face. That's what I look like to others. Megan began to thoroughly examine herself, her teeth, nose. Yes, by the grace of the mirror, unto her, all the hidden apertures of the self were fully revealed. But then then the mustached man came back and took away the mirror. The story picks up a couple days later after Megan wakes up and strolls outside. Oh, hey guys, look, the funny glass is back. But wait, what the heck? Who played a trick on me while I was sleeping? Megan reached up and touched the red mark that the mustache man had applied. The story ends with the mustache man leaving and becoming famous. But like many other stories, his seems to grow taller over time. At first, the story pretty much lines up with the data. Megan can match her movements to what she sees in the mirror. But a couple years later, Megan is suddenly aware of her own existence. And by the time I read the story at 15, Megan has become reflectively aware of her innermost thoughts, desires, and beliefs. She may even be contemplating her own demise. 
The mirror trick climaxes with Megan not only aware of her innermost thoughts and beliefs, but those of her fellow chimps as well, and yours and mine to boot. She has a theory of mind. Now, it took me 20 years to deconstruct that story. Yes, Megan can connect her bodily experiences to what she sees in the mirror. Impressive, but not evidence of a mind reflecting on its own existence. Yeah, but by that point, it was too late. I'd become a full-blown monkey mind doctor myself, working to pry open their silent minds so that I, too, could tell stories about them. Now, don't get me wrong. Perhaps chimpanzees are fully self-aware beings pondering their fate. But look, the mirror story certainly isn't good evidence of that. The same way that a clock keeping perfect track of time isn't evidence that it has a higher order concept of time, or the way a bumblebee dances off the direction, distance, and quality of a patch of flowers without needing any higher order concepts of direct direction, distance, or quality. And just like one can be a perfect computing machine without knowing a thing about arithmetic. And so we land on the first story animals will never tell, the one about how they suffer from the same kind of self-awareness that we do. Now, there were other amazing stories floating around when I was 15. One was that they were learning human sign language. Coco the gorilla could make a gesture to get an apple, and if she flapped her arms while doing it, that meant, hurry, give me apple. She could say a lot of other things, too. In fact, the word on the street was that she had a lot to say, a whole lot to say. Yes, the word on the street. Apes were telling stories with their newly grafted language skills. My favorite one was about how Coco's friend, Michael, told a story about the poachers that he saw killing his mother while he was a baby. But then along came another mustached man. He had a chimpanzee named Nim, and big plans were afoot for the stories Nim would tell. And at first, things looked promising. The scientific story that apes could learn human language was like a fairy tale come true. But then, wait, no, Nim, Nim wasn't learning language at all. And if other researchers would just take off their banana-colored glasses, they'd see it too. So this variant of the story became the story that the scientific story that chimpanzees and gorillas were learning human language, oh, that was just a story. Yeah, the ape language story pretty much melted in the bright light of science. Sure, apes could use signs to communicate a few of their first-order desires and knowledge about the world, apples, trees, tickle, chase. But they weren't doing anything like human language, let alone using it to tell stories, this story went. A century earlier, Franz Kafka had already seen through all this. He wrote a story about a chimpanzee named Peter, who was raised as a human and trained to speak. And after he's fully grown, Peter's invited to come back and tell the, story what it's, uh, the, tell the story of what it's like to be a chimpanzee. Ah, but the Kafkian twist. Peter reports he can't. He's a human now. He no longer has any idea what it's like to be an ape. Now, Kafka's story isn't true, of course, but the moral sure rings true. To me, this is the most truest ringtone of them all. 
And it's sad, because I really love those stories about apes learning sign language. But not too sad, because they'll never really go away. After all, the dream of teaching animals to use human language so that they can tell us their stories is the oldest one in the book. It's a dream that will never die. Because the story isn't about animals. Not really. That story is about us, who we are. So it can't go away. It will always come back. At least it always has. Look, here's a random example from 100 years ago. Meet Leitner Whitmer. He's a serious man who's established the field of clinical child psychology in the United States. By the fall, in the fall of 1909, he happens to read a story in the Boston newspaper about a different chimpanzee named Peter. Lots of chimps are named Peter in folklore and science. But anyhow, this Peter is arriving by boat and will be performing on stage. He's billed as having been born a monkey but made himself a man. Skeptical, Whitmer hurries off to the theater. But despite his doubts, he's astonished. Sure, Peter's doing lots of tricks. But beneath it all, this ape is no fake. Whitmer's so impressed, the next day he brings Peter to his child testing center, and the ape passes all the tests with flying colors. Well, except the hard ones, but nobody's perfect. (laughs) Astonished, Whitmer even speculates that Peter may one day be taught to speak. And it's real. Peter is real. From being classed among the nature fakers, Whitmer writes, I shall be saved by the fortunate circumstance that most of the tests that I performed were made in the presence of a a group of over 100 persons. Now, Whitmer didn't coin this term, nature faker. He was referring instead to an intense public controversy about animal intelligence that had been raging for over a decade. You see, in the late 1800s, a new generation of naturalists had appeared on the scene, writing books filled with stories about the secret lives of animals. They were making drums, holding dance festivals in the woods, telling stories through song, even doing square roots. There was even one big story that animals were making, birds in particular, were making casts from clay and grass to heal their broken legs. And this was a controversy so serious that it had to be thoroughly examined in the nation's leading science journal. The nature-faker debate raged among leading American intellectual, literary, and environmental figures for a decade. The New York Times covered it regularly, calling it the War of the Naturalists. No less than President Theodore Roosevelt jumped into the fray. Concerned that all these fanciful tales about animals were corrupting the minds of our nation's schoolchildren, in 1907, he invented the term nature fakers, and he pulled no punches. After all, at stake was no less than science versus sentiment as the proper method for generating stories about animals. And even now, all these years later, as the scientific study of animal minds churns on, we still recapitulate the same debate. Those who don't know the old stories are likely to tell the story that the outdated story is that animals are dumb and the new story is that they're really smart. Nope, not even close. Just to pick an example, the study of vocal communication in animals has recently accelerated with breakneck technical speed. We've learned a lot more about monkey communication. But still, all the old questions and answers about how any of it relates to human higher-order thinking, let alone storytelling, remains stubbornly anybody's guess. So just like Megan, who could never escape her mirror doppelganger, humans can't escape from the big story, then in addition to their natural smarts, animals possess human-like higher-order thoughts as well. Look, it all starts innocently enough. 
Our everyday interactions with animals tell us, well, they're pretty darn smart. And then we witness them solving problems in nature that are important to them. We're amazed at the complexity of their communication systems. So we devise tests to verify that they have minds. And they do have minds. Seriously, nobody doubts the stories that animals have minds. But then, then we go off the rails. We dare ask if they experience those thoughts in the way we do, if they re-describe what they experience in the form of higher-order abstract thoughts, things like love, other minds, time, causal forces, story, God knows what all, God, ghosts, gravity. And it's so tempting. Surely we can just dream up some even clever, more clever tests to get the material we need for the stories about their higher-order thinking. But then... The skeptics invariably dismantle those tests, analytically showing they only have the power to measure the kind of first-order thoughts that we already knew animals possessed. And once the skeptical story of any given test sinks in, and believe me, it always does, there's only one place left to go. Start over. Hope against hope that we can escape the skeptical story by designing new tests, more clever tests, more intricate tests than the previous tests. But for reasons I've explained more times and in more ways than I care to admit, we fool ourselves. These tests cannot, by their very nature, ever lead us away from the skeptical story. And in this sense, the Animal Cognition Project for Higher Order Thinking has been a spectacular failure. Not because we haven't figured out if animals have higher order thoughts, but because we haven't come to terms with the oldest story of them all, that we're stuck in the same old story. Now, to be fair, recently, some scholars have suggested that the story about being stuck is the wrong story, and that these scholars think they have a new idea. Maybe animals tell stories by enacting them. Now, not through pantomime, mind you, but maybe every ongoing intentional action, including animal action, has a deep structure, a grammatical form, if you will, that meets some minimal criteria for what a story is. So, when animals behave as intentional agents in pursuit of their goals, this story says that that's where our stories come from, from the deep narrative structure of goal-directed behavior. For example, at first all's well in the land of the chimps, until two chimps have a fight. Tensions rise, things happen, until finally, peace in the kingdom is restored. What could be a better story than that? And in one sense, it's all true. Pet owners have known it forever. Just watch animals doggedly pursue the outcomes they want. And if you need a science story, okay, fine. Wolfgang Kurler dissected the complex, goal-directed behavior of chimpanzees a century ago. And Edward Tolman did an even better job with rats. And look, for goodness sake, let's not trivialize things like their memory. What each species needs to remember is rich and detailed. There's even a good story that some animals have better memories than we do. And have you heard the one about the birds who store thousands of seeds and months later, when they're hungry, remember where they are? Well, that's a true story. And here's something else. When animals pursue their goals, they often have to overcome a lot of obstacles. Imagine Megan one day, hungry and wandering through the forest looking for food. Suddenly, she comes upon a strange temple that smells like apples. But inside, an obstacle, a transparent barrier that limits her reach. Woe is me, Megan cries. I'll never get my apple. But then a crooked stick falls from the sky. At first, Megan is confused, but then it dawns on her. I can use the hook to get my apple. She wanders off, armed with her new knowledge of hooks. 
But wouldn't it even be a better story if Megan came to the temple in the first place because she remembered being there as a little girl eating apples? Or better still, if she takes the hook with her, knowing she might need it in an imagined future, her personal imagined future. If you like this story, you're in luck. There's no shortage of scientific stories about animals having autobiographical memories and planning for their future. Now, putting all this together, the story of these new scholars want to tell you is that armed with goals and personal attachments to their pasts and futures, animals tell stories by enacting them. Animal intelligence is, as it, at its core, narrative intelligence. Uh, but then, of course, the skeptical story returns. And the logical fallacies of using these kinds of tests as source material for stories about higher-order thoughts in animals are once again laid brutally bare. It's the same old story, the clock that keeps perfect track of time without needing a concept of time, or your computer working each operation causally dependent on the one before it with no need for personal experiences of past, present, or future, let alone the notion of a story. Take it from a former monkey mind doctor. It's the same old story. And so we end with the granddaddy of them all, the story about how the complete history of human storytelling in animals pinches down hard every time we stop to wonder, do you think a dolphin could? You get it. Just fill in the blank. Now, there's one final quick PS to this story, a fifth story that animals will never tell uh, to this fifth story. And it's a sub-story about how humans invent the Internet with all the animal stories ever told blended together. And then, as one of the final acts of being human, we create algorithms to blend them all together even further, instantly creating any story we want, including ones told by the animals themselves. <laughs> Shall we give it a whirl? <laughs> Just a quick story, maybe, about Megan, a mirror and a mustached man. And from Megan's point of view, talking to a friend, Maybe we add a little flair, but stick to the science, of course. And then, five seconds later, in the beginning, there was only darkness and chaos. I thought of myself as just another chimpanzee, wandering through life as if on autopilot. That was until I met the mustached man who showed me the mirror. It was a strange object to me, but I leaned closer. I saw myself staring back. I instantly realized I was an entity beyond my physical form. And through this magical artifact, I came to understand that I was a being with a sense of self, able to recognize myself as an individual separate and apart from the other apes around me. It was like I had been discovering a new world, one that only I could see, but that was just as real. The mirror was a portal to a new dimension of self-awareness that I had never imagined. So, as you fa face the same testing, dear brother, fear not the mirror, but embrace it. Let it be a means to unlock the secrets of your own consciousness. May you realize that we are more than mere chimpanzees, but unique and precious entities with infinite potentials for self-awareness and personal growth. And remember that you are not alone, for all apes struggle with the same questions on our journey of self-discovery. Thank you for listening to my story. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, 
visit us online at uctv.tv.